as ever my um as ever my home computer is uh, is pretty uh, zoo uh, my lap my traveling computer is very zoom averse i mean dell makes terrible computers but i actually asked them to make me a worse one so uh it's pretty much entirely my fault and uh so now we're we're suffering along with this so I'm wondering if I could just, um, I haven't had a chance to listen to all the stuff that happened in my absence. Um, tell me what happened last week. Uh, well, we discussed uh, Naboo last week. Oh, awesome. And uh, okay. our RT uh, really kind of um, helped us with the assist. He had a lot of... Uh, a good commentary and filled in some historical gaps and things like that. Uh, and then at the end, I'm sorry, I don't know names very really well. RT, what was his name? Um, Michael? Jonathan? Jonathan, that's it. Jonathan, uh, he had a lot of interesting commentary on kind of the, the Jewish parallel to all this, you know, with Israel and like it's promised land and he had several really good comments kind of paralleling our discussion about Nauvoo as a failed utopia. We were able to uh, synthesize the definition of a Gentile from the Jewish and LDS perspectives. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> okay, that's, that's pretty amazing right there. That's worth the price of admission. And okay, all right. I'm I'm trying, trying very hard to uh, make a Zoom function on my laptop. I think that's going to once again not happen uh, today. So um, we've got um, so we've got some stuff to uh, consider. Uh, we had um, um, so <clears throat> uh, because we're so far off schedule. There's a question of what people's priorities are for today, uh, what most needs to be filled in out of the stuff that we haven't covered, uh, whether we might want to head to um, uh, Central America, South America, um, uh, what other uh, what other places we might want to uh, want to consider. Uh, now I know that um, our friend from Victoria joined for um specific um for some specific stuff and i know what uh, jason dormady did as well and i don't 100 percent remember what either of them uh, joined for and so i also want to like um i don't necessarily want to run the stuff that they um had specifically sought to hear about uh today on the other hand um there is kind of a schedule and recordings will be made available. So uh, perhaps we should embark onto a uh, non-Anglo-American area and uh, then um, and then we can have um, an additional Q&A uh, based on the recording if uh, people don't, um, if people aren't ready for, uh, if, uh, if people had wanted to uh, participate in those but aren't here today. I think it's important we not lose momentum. We definitely should do a class today of some sort. Um, what, uh, does anybody have any input on um, what notes we might wanna hit? 
All right. Uh, out of all of those things just listed, I'm not sure. I think I'm down for anything. Uh, the main thing for the rest of the course that I don't want to miss out on is the dialogue on the John Burr Society. Ah, okay. Well, um, okay, I'm just going to... Whatever route doesn't detour around that is the one I picked. Okay. Well, um, I think the date we pick for that discussion is uh, pretty much under our control, and we'll hammer that out. So, uh, I think it's really useful that we do one of the Latin American cases. I am probably better prepped for um, the Paraguay case than I am for Los Altos. No, actually, maybe I think the opposite. Yes, you know what? I'm going to do. I'm going to do Los Altos um, first. So. This, I think, so we have this sense of an Anglo-Utopianism. We have a sense of, you know, even if the uh, Puritan, even if the Pilgrim Fathers were not exactly utopians in the sense we might imagine, they helped to inspire utopians who succeeded them, beginning with uh, Roger Williams. Uh, and... So we have this sense of the English tradition. And um, although uh, Kenya Sares has gone to some effort to, um, hey, Michael, uh, although Kenya Sares has gone to some effort to situate the um, Anglo and Spanish traditions closer together, um, the fact is that there are still really sharp differences in um, utopianism that um, we should probably consider. So let's go back to, uh, to some of those early comments about the Pilgrim Fathers and about Puritanism. So one of the commonalities that Kenya Zares points out is that um, both the um, English and Spanish um, saw aspects of the new world is demonic and they saw the process they were involved in as not just the conversion of persons but the conversion of physical places and this goes back to a long-standing medieval tradition one with which the spanish empire is much more continuous so when the spanish empire comes to the new world um, there is no pretext of utopianism. The original version of the Spanish empire that comes to the new world is the one that arrives in the Atlantic islands in um, the 1400s, right? The Spanish arrive uh, on the Canary Islands in 1406 and begin their conquest of the islands in 1420. And, um, in many ways, uh, the Canaries are the dress rehearsal for uh, the new world. In fact, it's useful to class the Canaries as essentially the, the colonialism there is essentially being of a piece with Spanish colonialism in the Caribbean. The Spanish 
really underdeveloped the Caribbean. When they got there, it was an extractive location. So just as in the Canaries, what the Spanish did um, on Hispaniola, the Hispaniola, what Spanish did on Hispaniola was essentially the same as in the Canaries. They came in, they enslaved a local population that was uh, not literate, um, that had largely a Stone Age technology, and um, they used that population for placer gold mining. And Canary Islanders slaves were also the first slaves who were brought to the Caribbean. So, um, but on Hispaniola and Cuba, uh, the Spanish did the same thing with the Arawak people. They encountered a people that, while very culturally different uh, from the Huanche people of the Canaries, were essentially um, in a similar material and technological situation. Now, we think today of plantation agriculture, the sugar plantations, as the longstanding basis of Caribbean colonialism. But that's not the case at the beginning. While the Portuguese developed sugar plantations in Brazil, in the Azores and in Madeira, um, using an enslaved labor force that they imported. The Spanish did not develop significant plantation agriculture. And that's because they were hammered by a particularly bad understanding of economics. The Spanish of all of the colonial empires were the most committed to believing that gold made wealth. Their understanding of economics was radically unsophisticated. Now, this lack of sophistication will actually produce paradoxical benefits when we get to Paraguay next session. But, um, in, uh, but in the Caribbean, uh, largely, these, um, they did not develop intensive plantation agriculture. Um, the way the Portuguese did in their Brazilian and Atlantic Island colonies. And the same is true of the Spanish in the Canaries. And so with this intense focus on simply the material extraction of gold, while plantation societies are shitty societies, the Spanish seemed uninterested in society at all. Their interest in society really comes from their encounter with the mainland of Central and South America. And their interest in society is, comes from witnessing productive societies that were producing wealth that preceded them in those places. So, when the Spanish, and this is really true of the Spanish Empire right up until 1823, uh, the Spanish did not really have a theory for how to colonize the New World. Um, their great successes came from removing the top layer of pre existing continental empires, the Aztec Empire in the north and the Inca Empire in the south 
and making actually surprisingly small reforms to the material operations of those empires. Incremental reforms based on exigencies. There was no grand vision that the Spanish Empire brought to the New World. Um, there was not really a utopian dream that came out of the Spanish court or the Council of the Indies in Seville. So whereas the Puritans were a powerful elite faction fighting for dominance within English society, um, there was no similar social movement in uh, Spanish society. Although it depends on how one, what one means when one says Spanish. The people who brought the utopian vision to the new world um, were men like Bartolome de las Casas, the humanitarian reformer of Hispaniola, the one who campaigned to prevent, uh, to ban indigenous slavery, and the one who got the laws proclaimed uh, prohibiting uh, the Inquisition from trying indigenous people for heresy or idolatry. And because of the balance, because the balance between church and state and the relative construction of church versus state institutions is so radically different in uh, a Calvinist world than in a Catholic world, um, the impetus for the first people with real utopian visions uh, for the new world were people dispatched from Rome, people who came at the behest of the Spanish monarchy um, to evangelize the indigenous people. Because, and this is a result of a piece of international law called the Treaty of Tordesillas, proclaimed by the Pope. Um, it, it gave huge swaths of the New World to the Spanish and Portuguese on the understanding that their purpose there was to evangelize indigenous people, to bring souls to Christ. And so although many of the Spanish Franciscans who served um, as the first wave of missionaries before the Jesuits come into being, because the Jesuits don't even exist at the beginning of our story, it's the Franciscans who are um, who go to the New World, and we've got to consider who the Franciscans are who go to the New World. The Franciscan order is enormous, and there are serious power struggles within it. Um, because the Franciscans effectively develop the theology necessary to create modern banking, um, they're a tremendously powerful, wealthy order. And they have a highly pragmatic side that is leavening capitalism in the Mediterranean basin and running the banking system and uh, polemicizing in favor of all that. But there were, uh, there were what we might call revitalization movements within the Franciscans who really believed that the order had taken a bad turn. Uh, Joaquim of Fiore was a crucial visionary in all that. 
So it's the, it's the followers of this fellow, Joachim Fiore, who are massively overrepresented in the ranks of the Franciscans who come to the New World. Now, the first task for the Franciscans <clears throat> is to preside over um, essentially the reorganization of Aztec society in the face of the first major epidemics. And they have a lot to do because they have success. Uh, so first of all, they burn all these records of the Aztec empire and then immediately repent of doing so and try and put them back together. And they do extensive ethnographic research to try and find out what was in all the books they just burned. And amazing, amazing work. So, because it's totally sincere. Like they, they oh, that was a, why the hell did we do that? That was a terrible mistake. Um, and they managed to replace a lot of the data and not all the codices are burned. But the big project the Franciscans have to preside over uh, in the Aztec Empire is a project called Congregacion, where indigenous people are, um, these vill some villages have been so decimated by epidemics, they no longer function economically. And so the Franciscans have to worry about reorganizing villages, moving people around, organizing census data. And so it's a massive bureaucratic project. And they're baptizing people in the millions because they very successfully polemicized in favor because they, it's not like they, they do ethnographic research out of the goodness of their hearts. The reason you do ethnographic research is to bring souls to God. You do that by finding equivalencies in other cultures for the ideas in yours. And the Franciscans hit upon the fact that the Mesoamerican blood cult is based on the idea that um, the best people in the world are sacrificed to the earth monster on top of the pyramid to keep the world going. And that the elites are permitted to eat their flesh as part of um, this ritual process of keeping the world alive. So what the Franciscans sell is the idea that they know a kind of magic that can turn tortillas into human flesh. And they don't just turn it into the human flesh of good people, they turn it into the flesh of the best person who has ever lived. That's pretty compelling. But there's a reciprocity to this because the Franciscans begin to think to themselves, wait a minute, maybe there's another explanation for what's going on here. We previously considered, as I said in the first lecture, that maybe the new world is a counterfeit, or maybe the new world is the old world before the fall and is not subject to original sin. But a third possibility begins to occur to them, that perhaps the um, apostle Thomas uh, did come to the new world and that they, and that they are assisting uh, wild speaking people in rediscovering their prior Christianity. Again, nothing, nothing familiar going on here for anybody in this room. So this idea 
takes off to a certain degree. And it fits into the idealism of Joachim of Fiore. Because one of the things about Joachim, and one of the things that's affected by congregation or affects congregation, is that Joachim is, is, um, has this figural understanding of time, this belief that there is a geometry to holiness, to the mapping of holy space-time onto the physical world, which is a belief that um, sits at the foundation of Mexico Valley society. Uh, the belief that the world is, a is an endless upscaling of the apple-petal, um, this geometric layout of, a, um, of an extended family dwelling in a town. And then the town is a magnification of that. And then the city-state is a magnification of that all the way up and all the way down. Uh, again, this resonates strongly with the Franciscans. And so one of the things that is sharply, sharply different uh, between Spanish and English utopianism is that the praying towns of Massachusetts, places like Martha's Vineyard, are exceptional in English utopianism. English utopianism is primarily a settler utopianism. Spanish utopianism is, even when it's European-led, is understood to be about constructing a utopia of indigenous people for indigenous people based on their elect role. And uh, that spirit of uh, understanding indigeneity and its relationship to uh, the ideal um, is going to color all of the major Spanish utopian experiments. The first of these experiments is not even really intended as a construction of a utopia. You don't reach a place where the Spanish try to build an indigenous utopia until we're in 18th century Paraguay. But in the 1540s, um, the Franciscans led by Bishop Landa are given the responsibility of organizing the Yucatan and dealing with speakers of Mayan languages. Um, New Spain and the big colonial project, the subjects are speakers of Nahuatl languages, primarily Nahuatl. And uh, while there's a small number of Mayan speaking vassal states at the Southern periphery of the Mexico Valley, they're very much the exception. Uh, it's Nahuatl, uh, it's Nahuatl speakers who are the center of the empire. Now, one of the things about the Yucatan is it is far less congenial to Spanish occupation. It is humid, it is wet, and it has a village culture that is based on, um, a very different style of agriculture than, uh, what the Spanish have seen. Well, the Spanish are impressed and amazed by the maize agriculture uh, um, 
of uh, the Mexico Valley, the mine agriculture is more peculiar. It's something that um, uh, it's slash and burn inside under the forest canopy. So um, what? Um, so mine speakers will uh, not intercrop their corn. They'll intensive crop their corn. They'll clear cut. They'll put the corn in. They'll pull all the nutrients out of the soil. And then they'll let that grow back and do another clear cut in a sort of clockwise rotation around their village or counterclockwise. Um, and so the jungle is so rich, it, um, this ecosystem replaces so many soil nutrients that you really, um, you can, on the one hand, most of the land around you is not in agricultural production, but the land that is around you is in fairly intensive agricultural production. These are not permaculturalists, contrary to the horseshit that even many of my allies say about Mayans. Uh, these villages are so much smaller than the city-states of the Mexico Valley. They have so many fewer amenities. Yes, there are all these pyramids, some are in use, some are not. There are all these ritual sites. But whereas the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan is the center of the downtown core, like a modern stock exchange, where we sacrifice people at about 40-minute intervals, the... Um, the Mayan society is very different. There aren't big cities with big downtowns. There isn't a great urban life. Um, ritual sites tend to be outside of urban space. They're like uh, early Celts who come together, build big religious infrastructure, and then don't live in it. Uh, it's just not ecologically conducive to that kind of life. So, the um, so the Franciscans are tasked with the problem of colonizing a region without settling it. Um, initially, they think they might settle in the region. Yeah, they even give up on that. So what they do is they go in 1540 and they evangelize. Um, they've had good linguistic uh, work done for them. They understand the spoken languages quite well. They explain the story of Jesus Christ and they um, promise to come back next year uh, to baptize more people and preach the gospel again. And it is a resounding success, but a bit of an uncomfortable one. While Nawa and Maya people might have very different styles of um, dwelling and ritual site. Um, the Maya also believe in a blood cult. They use a similar kind of symbolic language, uh, symbolic uh, writing for their language. They have, uh, there are these cultural similarities and they're, in a way, even more impressed than uh, the, uh, uh, they're even more impressed than the uh, Nawas. Because when the um, missionaries return in 1541, they arrive at the first city and runners go out to let all of the Mayan villages know 
that um, the, these, these God men have returned, these men with this special message. And in each city they visit, they discover that about three days before they've shown up, the member of the village who would previously have been the ball game sacrifice has been crucified for them. Ah, uh, they, uh, everywhere they go, there is a guy on a cross being Jesus, just to show, just to show the Franciscans that the Mayan people have got the message. And what's interesting here, and uh, yeah, John Sorensen made much of that. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I think we'll have some good Mormon commentary on all this. I figured you guys would love some of the background here. And, uh, so the thing is, um, what's fascinating about the Maya, which makes them very different than other convert peoples is that they push back. They go, no, you're wrong. We understand your stupid book better than you do. Thank you very much. This is the right way to do it. And since 1541, the core of Mayan nationalism has been the belief that the Maya are the most Christian people in the world and that the Europeans have got it wrong. And it's not because they learned at the feet of the Europeans. They just always have been that. It is, the, it is part of their essence. And that is something that makes us always flat-footed allies of indigenous Mayan utopian movements. Because there's no question that this awakens in the Maya a utopian imaginary. Um, that one of the effects of the blood cult on one's time consciousness is that you are simply trying to hold the world together and this is about as good as it gets. That everybody's doing everything in their power just to keep surviving. That the elements of the universe are otherwise going to go into conflict with each other and the world will end. Well, the, the Maya developed this sense of, no, we, as true Christians, we understand that we can make a better world here on earth. That we can do better than our traditions have done. We will build on those traditions, but we will make a new kind of community that is more Christian than the previous one. So Christian communitarianism is taken very seriously from the beginning. Um, and we see as a result um, that when the Maya, who are hard to conquer, hard to control, in a region that is hard to occupy, that whenever they push back against European colonialism, um, they are doing it in the name of Christianity. Now, there's of course a lot of this in many indigenous communities. And certainly when we've seen big alliances between Nahuatl speakers of Northern Mexico and Mayan speakers of Southern Mexico, um, the flag to rally them to is that of the Virgin Mary, of the Blessed Virgin, La Conquistadora, in one of her many aspects. And uh, this was the banner under which um, uh, Mexican independence was fought for. It was the banner of the coalition between uh, 
the uh, the now on the Maya. But those coalitions emerge out of political exigency. They the Maya have ex experienced, and especially the Northern Maya, experienced periodic colonialism and um, tributary vassal relationships with the empires of the Mexico Valley. They're already familiar before the Europeans arrive with an external force that is always trying to usurp their sense of independence. Now, the so Matthew Restall in his book, The Seven Myths of Spanish Conquest, uh, says the single most important myth that distorts our understandings of the conquest, and one that I've got to say applies as much to British Columbia as it does to um, anywhere in the former Spanish Empire, is the myth of completion. The belief that the conquest is over and not still in process. We've been working on conquering the Maya for, you know, 480 years. It's clearly not done. Uh, the uh, mind-speaking regions of the world, people are still growing up speaking their native language, Kiche or Kachikal. Um, they're, um, and they're living in ways that are continuous with their past. Congregacion does not reshape the Yucatan and the way that it reshapes the area to the north. And in fact, Congregacion is not really uh, attempted in uh, these regions because these are smaller villages with more organic structures. There's a Congregacion that's already taking place when there are significant demographic losses. Now, this does not yield really what we might fully call a Mayan utopianism until uh, the 19th century. Um, whereas in the English speaking new world, there's a war that is initiated. Well, essentially the English, you have to organize an army that will throw them out uh, 20 years before it does. They have to create the continental army because it's a strategy for winning the Seven Years' War. And they put Jeffrey Amherst and George Washington in charge of it, even though George Washington caused the Seven Years' War accidentally. Um, in the Spanish New World, it's a different story. One of the reasons Spanish colonialism lasts as long as it does is because under the Habsburgs, um, it's cripplingly inefficient. By the time the Habsburg dynasty loses control of the Spanish Empire, 93% of the gold and silver exacted in tribute from the New World is being lost on the way. Uh, and political offices are held by people of mixed race, of multi-generations, so they can trace back to the aristocratic lineages of indigenous people. 
So in more organized and profitable areas of the Spanish Empire, during the second half of the 18th century, the Bourbon dynasty takes over and builds all these highly efficient systems that squeeze people and oppress people. And people notice they're inside the empire in ways that they haven't been ultimately leading to its collapse. But in the case of the Yucatan, the Bourbons never really get that far. There isn't that much money to extract. No one's trying to seize that territory, unlike California and Argentina and the places they reorganize against colonial competitors. So what happens is when Joseph Bonaparte is placed on the throne of France. Um, various uh, loyalist armies show up to support the king of Spain, the, the, um, the, 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 the proper king of Spain, Ferdinand. They don't really know who Ferdinand is, but those armies gradually, their mission changes. Uh, they're rallied under the flag of the Virgin and then there, uh, but the people who enlist are people of mixed race and the armies in, in present day Guatemala, Mexico, um, the Maya, other Mayan speaking areas, those armies uh, are primarily uh, uprising against the caste system their anti-racist, anti-slavery armies. And, by, and there's a very complex process whereby the anti-racist, anti-slavery armies um, attain Mexican independence. And then a pro-imperial faction um, hijacks the revolution. And Agustin de, de Iturbide creates something called the Empire of Mexico that lasts for a mere two years, 1821 to 1823. Uh, the Empire of Mexico uh, is not particularly anti-racist. It tries to maintain slavery. Um, it is certainly Catholic, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not a particularly strongly theocratic empire. And in 1823, that coalition shatters and two countries emerge, the United Provinces of Central America and the United States of Mexico. And the beginning of what we might call modern Mayan utopianism is here. The United Provinces of Central America are, is a very strange project. It's led by a liberal warlord, uh, Francisco Morazan. And Morazan, um, first of all, is beset on all sides. He's a liberal, but he's in an overwhelmingly illiterate, rural, demographically indigenous region with minimal infrastructure. All the good infrastructure is now in the United States of Mexico and Morazan is working with not a whole hell of a lot. And the British are busy invading Honduras. 
And so, of course, Morrison's first project is to travel to Washington and beg President James Monroe to guarantee the safety of the liberal republics of Central America. So it's true the Monroe Doctrine has gone rather wrong, but it was proclaimed at the behest of Central and South American people who needed a military protector against the recolonization and neocolonialism of the British. And between the alliance with America and his great uh, abilities as a military commander, uh, Morrison is able to maintain some level of control. And he blows it all on secularization. His big priority becomes to make uh, Central America a liberal secular society. And one of the first areas of reform he focuses on are the cemeteries. Uh, cemeteries are unsanitary. Often bodies are buried in shallow graves inside churches. Uh, and this arises from uh, a profound Mayan fidelity to medieval Franciscan medieval ideas of sacred burial, some of which come from the Franciscans and some of which come from traditional Mayan beliefs. And they're horrified by the disinterment of their ancestors. They're horrified by the state surveillance and authoritarianism they're facing in their villages, which have never had a national authority wondering about public health and the like. Um, they see this as a, a godless, terrible thing. And of course, the other things liberals believe, the other thing liberals believe in is the privatization of collective lands. And because the Yucatan is primarily held in the hands of religious orders and not encomenderos, uh, what that means is that um, just like the people living on the monastic lands of Europe during enclosure, the people living, um, uh, living on, these, on these church lands are largely self-governing, largely collectivized. And the state shows up to disrupt that as well. And various factions rise in rebellion against Morrison's policies. And the United Provinces of Central America fracture into a series of separate countries controlled by different warlords. One of these countries is the Republic of Los Altos. Uh, and it is one of the shortest lived countries in the history of the Western Hemisphere. It lasts for only about a decade. And we actually don't know a great deal about it uh, because the records it kept, it did not keep in Spanish uh, or it kept some in Spanish but old Mayan scripts were used because unlike the other Central American countries, Los Altos had a Mayan speaking majority 
the most common written languages were also Mayan. The biggest cities were Mayan, Chimiltenango, Quetzaltenango, places like that. And it and Los Altos provoked a reaction similar to the reaction to Haiti that the world had had a generation before. Liberal revolutions in the New World were scary. The United the American Revolution was scary. You know, the young liberals, Argentines, whatever, that's scary. But when Black people had a revolution and attempted to implement a hybrid system, uh, this mixture of 19th century liberalism and 16th century Nigerian theories of kingship, of course, the world went apeshit and is still lighting Haiti on fire every few years in case it pulls itself together. People still need to learn the lesson that that's not allowed to happen, that slaves can't just rise up and slay their oppressors and set up a, uh, a, uh, uh, a non-white-led state without serious consequences. Well, Los Altos was a similar provocation. Whereas Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, these were places where um, liberals fought conservatives and um, some places the conservatives won, some places the liberals won, but the new country coming into being was not really questioned. Nobody said this state is not meant to exist. But those states had an official language of Spanish. Those states had liberal constitutions. Those states believed that land could be held in private fee simple title. And uh, the Republic of Los Altos did not believe those things. And as a consequence, the conservative warlord who created Guatemala, Rafael de Carrera, um, was largely encouraged by liberals to reconquer Los Altos and incorporate it into Guatemala. Um, Carrera was able to do this by making a series of religious concessions. So, Carrera essentially um, dropped the land, uh, basically continued to oppose land collectivization because that's what got him liberal support, but he dropped the reforms to the burial policies and the cemeteries and the public health and all that, and was able to gain enough mestizo allies that they were able to subjugate Los Altos again. Now, on the other side of the border with Mexico is Chiapas. Chiapas is a similar story. It didn't try to separate, but its independence was viewed similarly as a threat. And considerable military work went into supposedly securing Mexico's southern border. But what this work was really about was resubjugating the Mayan people in an area where they still retained a majority. And so since then, we've had this split of Mayan speakers between Guatemala and Mexico, 
and we've had um, and the uprising that created Los Altos has never really been put down. It shows up again and again. And what animates it is not typically a charismatic leader. It's one of the first big misinterpretations we had of thinking that the Zapatista movement, uh, the new Zapatista movement of the 1990s, was something where what, what was most important was the charismatic leadership of Subcomandante Marcos. Well, the fact that the leader is always masked should tell you something very important about Mayan ideas of leadership. The single longest standing Mayan uprising was something called the Caste War, which ran in Chiapas um, for most of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century. And Mayan armies would repeatedly clash with the liberal state over the control of land, but also over secularization efforts to um, efforts to uh, in any way produce a liberal secular society uh, laws that were thought to conflate male and female spheres things like that were seen as really problematic and the caste wars leader was a talking cross and i have to say in the history of military commanders this talking cross is seriously underrated. It appears to have been an excellent strategist. Uh, it was insightful. It was uh, uh, creative. It, uh, it had a lot going for it. And it um, stayed at war with Mexico for uh, longer than a human would because, you know, talking crosses also live longer. Now, we're doing the Mayan stuff sort of in two parts. Part one is Los Altos, and even though it's mainly a backgrounder, and I do very little description of Los Altos, the second part we're going to look at the um, Guatemalan Civil War during the Cold War era. We're going to look at the original Zapatista movement during the Mexican Revolution of 1908 to 1922. And we're going to look at the second Zapatista movement uh, proclaimed in 1994 um, and active up to the present day. Uh, Zapatistas continue to run a lot of towns. Uh, and yes, those towns may technically be part of Mexico, but they are not operationally part of Mexico. And so... Um, there's, there is a kind of practicality, of course, to Mayan utopianism, because it's not, the utopia is not seen as an experiment. It's seen as an elaboration, a magnification of a tradition, rather than a more Anglo understanding of a utopia as historically disruptive. Uh, Mayan utopianism is historically teleological. We are heading towards the kingdom of God on earth, and we are just going to keep hammering away at it. But it does not undermine many of 
the utopian principles, nor many of the on-the-ground effects. Many Anglo-Utopians could only dream of actually being able to run that many networked villages at the same time and operate outside of the law, international um, investor rights, all that stuff in a sustained manner. So that's, uh, that's number one lecture on uh, the Maya. Um, questions and comments, please. Neat lecture. Thanks. Well, as uh, Frank Costanza would say, I'm back, baby. Hurt. Oh, Jacob. Oh, oh I, I didn't actually. I didn't have a comment. I just like the uh, the stanza meme. Oh, good. Well, yeah, well there's a strange Seidelian meta language to our social circle up here that's been quite surprising. That's true. That is true, actually. <laughs> Art. I don't have that much to say. Yeah, well, there's more to say about this. Oh, sorry, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, I did like the tidbit about the uh, the order immediately regretting having burned a civilization books. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that was a huge crime. Oh, okay, we screwed up. We, we own it. We, you know, like, <laughs> you just we imagine. Up. I guess we're going to spend Yeah, except they didn't cry and apologize. They just spent 20 years fixing it. And right. wrote some amazing, amazing books. Uh, the Florentine Codex is, um, you know, a great ethnographic work that stands with, um, you know, it's got it's got sort of the grandeur of Herodotus with some of the accuracy of Franz Boas. It's pretty damned amazing. Michael, are you there? Well, Michael. Oh, there we go. Oh, yes, hey. I'm. Uh, there he I'm is. here, and I'm, uh, I'm. I'm cooking dinner while I'm uh, listening to the lecture. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Excellent. Yes. So, um, I liked the. Uh, there was a couple of things that I didn't know uh, that I found interesting, and one of them was um, the view of the Franciscans when they showed up and how that's different than what a lot of times we think about what the conquistador society was was doing you know the franciscans were kind of a unique uh, group and we need to remember that they are not the jesuits there's a whole other thing going on there but i really enjoyed the uh the idea that they showed up and they're like hey guys we've got this uh, this new religion to tell you about and it's it involves uh sacrificing and uh redemption but really, it's all about the sacrificing. And so here's our dead god on a stick. And the, the locals are like, well, shit, we can work with this. I mean, you guys are late to the party. We've been doing this a long time. <laughs> so that that part was new to me. I didn't realize that. And I really enjoyed the heck out of that. And the other, of course, I love hearing about Los Altos because, you know, who wouldn't? But um, <laughs> the... Uh, the idea around what a utopian 
view is, I think is, is something that we need to keep reminding ourselves of as we're going through these different groups, whether it's in the American Northeast with the Christians or sorry, the Puritans or uh, the early Mormons or what the Spanish were doing and how totally different they are. But I hope too, that we can find that little thread that, that goes through there to say, you know, even though this is a, a totally Spanish way of looking at a thing and a total Mayan or Aztec uh, response to it. But, you know, where are those, those common, those human commonalities to the idea of a utopia? That's what I, that's what I don't want to lose track of. So there was um, some theory that um, was, uh, so when I, when I started studying, um, Mormonism for my, my PhD, um, there was this, uh, the big sociology of religion idea that people were very focused on was this guy named Rodney Stark, who had come up with the theory of optimum tension, that, um, that you need, that a religious movement to survive needs to have an optimum tension with mainstream society. If the movement is too different from mainstream society, it will be crushed. And if it is too similar to mainstream society, it will become like mainline Protestantism and just be absorbed into it and disappear. And uh, I think that there's a variant on that that we can apply to utopias that utopias are obvious, their optimum tension levels are gonna be significantly higher than a religious movement that's distributed within a society. But I think there is, I think that there, if we're trying to plot these things and compare them and place them in the same category, I think we might wanna talk about an optimum tension between the inside and outside uh, when we assess whether something is utopian. I think that if the tension is too low, it's not that a utopia will die. It's just that it, um, it won't be a utopia. Its order will be insufficiently different. We might see it as a subculture or a community within a set of communities or something like that. But there has to be some way, I think, that the utopia is an implied criticism or of directly stated criticism of the society it's adjacent to. Um, and that means that there's gonna be, unlike the optimum tension with a religion, in many ways we can, as much as we might see Brigham Young's Utah as in some way dystopian, um, I think we can also see that, um, uh, that, um, in a way, it meets that utopia requirement in a way that uh, the subsequent Utah does not, because Brigham Young's Utah is periodically at war with America, just like Joseph Smith's Nauvoo or uh, uh, Kirtland or Independence, that um, uh, if the utopia is never at war, then how can it be a utopia? 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. Because uh, definitely say obviously that the uh, the Utah of the last century plus uh, kind of gave up the possibility of utopia and assimilation into the and, and now you would say I, you would almost say in some ways there is no uh, demarcated separate sociological group that is less at war with the country than, than the Mormons. Well, yeah, that bizarre Glenn Beck, Cleon Skousen thing that has happened in the past 20 years is really the icing on the cake. Now the evangelicals are trying to catch up to the Mormons in terms of material culture, time consciousness, all these other things. That's a great comparison. There's no other religious group that the Mormons have both sought after and successfully accomplished in dialogue than with evangelicals. That, that, yeah, that, it's very strange. That is by far the, the deepest and broadest interreligious relationship uh, that, that Mormons have, to my knowledge, with the evangelical community. Yeah. Well, folks, any further thoughts before um, I process this and start getting some recordings out to people? Because I got to get your recordings out too, Jacob. And thank you again for just taking the wheel during that giant shit blizzard. Oh, yeah, that's uh, absolutely. I mean, it, fortunately, it was my turn anyway. <laughs> So that that uh, probably one of the only things that worked out during that time, uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. Well, um, I'll uh, all right. Well, we'll sort that out, and I'll, I'll see you folks all on Wednesday when there is a small chance my microphone will have arrived. All right. All right. Bye, fellow humans. Thanks again. Bye bye.